Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and this week, it's all in the genes. We're discussing genetic engineering and the future of what it means to be human. So let's start with the very beginning. Yes, that's right, sex. We are, in the future, going to have sex for most of the wonderful reasons that we have sex now, for fun, for pair bonding, to connect with other people, to give meaning to our lives. But increasingly, we are going to do it less and less for procreation. This is Jamie Metzl, an expert on technology and geopolitics and the author of a new book, Hacking Darwin, The Genetic Revolution and the Future of Humanity. The reason that we're going to do that is because we are going to move from procreation through sex to procreation through IVF and embryo screening. And in the near term, that's we're going to do that so we can screen out terrible and in many cases deadly genetic diseases. So sex will be for the joy of intimacy, not the perpetuation of our species. That job will go to the scientists in the labs. Choosing our offspring's genetic health sounds like science fiction, but it is here now. One person pioneering this is Stephen Chu. He co-founded a company in America called Genomic Prediction, and he explained what it's doing on a recent podcast of The Economist, The World Ahead. We are actually working with clinics already we have a pipeline which takes the standard biopsy from the IVF embryo. That biopsy is currently mainly used to just test for Down syndrome in the embryo. But we then amplify the DNA further, and we can actually run all of these predictors on each embryo. And so the, parent, the IVF doctor receives a report on the risk profile and health profile of each embryo, and they can advise the parents that, for example, oh, you produced five embryos in this cycle, they all seem viable. However, number four looks like it's going to have materially different health problems, risks than the other, uh, the other embryos, and we suggest you implant one of the other ones. For the moment, the technology is used to screen for diseases, which is an easy test case. And it is happening in America where the regulations are much more permissive than elsewhere. But the direction of the technology is to expand the scope of what it can do, not just to prevent disease. In the near term, I think that to the extent that there are, quote, designer babies in the world or, or babies which are sort of selected to have certain traits rather than others, that will be through uh, genetic testing and not through editing. The main reason being that these complex traits that we're talking about, whether it's diabetes risk or um, how tall you are, they're controlled generally by hundreds or thousands of different genetic loci. 
And so to edit that number of loci is currently beyond our capability. And actually, we don't exactly know how we would do those edits, uh, even if we could. And so in the United States, IVF is less regulated than in the UK. Um, It's currently okay to advise IVF doctors about disease risks through genetic testing of embryos. In fact, it's quite widespread uh, for the case of Down syndrome and other inherited uh, Mendelian genetic diseases. As far as editing, that is currently considered beyond the pale by almost everyone. It may seem like too far now, but science is always changing the goalposts. In fact, it's just the crack of the starting gun. Jamie Metzl again. As we get in the habit of screening embryos, that's going to open up all kinds of possibilities for selecting embryos based on complex genetic traits such as height and IQ and personality style. This isn't an entirely new idea. It's been around since Huxley's Brave New World. And one can see what are the gains by this. But what are the costs? We lose something if we're not mindful. So certainly living a longer, healthier life is a great benefit that most people are are going to want. But if we're not careful, if we don't really think about the issues, if we don't articulate our values in a very positive way, there's a danger that we could lose our genetic diversity. And so right now when we think about diversity, we think about, well, we want to have a diverse workplace. We want to have diverse universities. But diversity is the sole survival strategy of our species. That's the foundation of Darwinian evolution. If we didn't have diversity, we would still be single-cell organisms. And if parents are selecting their embryos based on all kinds of ideas that may seem good at the time, living longer, living healthier, higher IQ, taller, more outgoing personality, there's a real danger that we could limit our genetic diversity as a species, and that could really cost us in the future. Another problem that Jamie sees is how we value ourselves and what brings our life meaning. Well, there's a real danger if we start seeing our own children as commodities, that we are selecting features. And let's just say you select a feature, and the feature you select doesn't turn out as you would have hoped. Are you going to be disappointed? You say, you know, I invested so much time and energy, and I thought I was going to have a music prodigy, and this kid isn't up to it. I mean, there's a real danger that we could dehumanize ourselves if we're not careful. And that's why this whole conversation, I mean, it's about science, it's about technology, but at its core, This is a conversation about values. That's such an important idea, values. It is an essential conversation that society needs to have before the technology advances quicker than the regulations can keep up. Clearly, there are kind of huge advancements in terms of genetic engineering for crops and helping to feed the world. And of course, using genetic engineering for eliminating very serious life-threatening diseases such as Huntington's disease, um, that's a very kind of noble pursuit. This is Gulzar Barn, a philosopher at King's College London. But I think we have to be careful about kind of using those justifications and extrapolating those justifications and extending these to kind of uh, justifying other more invasive and problematic types of enhancement and engineering. I think it's really useful to unpack some of the assumptions that we see in this kind of discourse. So often it's kind of taken as axiomatic and an unproblematic starting point that it's okay to select against Down syndrome, for example, that this is okay, this is eradicated. But if you look at various uh, disability rights movements, they actually are opposed to this kind of selection 
because they argue that it's actually inimical to the rights that uh, underpin disabled people and also it's kind of inimical to valuing their lives as equal in some way. So often that's taken as a starting point and it's argued that if we can select against Down syndrome, why shouldn't we then also create uh, higher levels of well-being in terms of selecting for IQ. But we really need to consider why it is that IQ in the first instance uh, kind of tends to map onto better outcomes and um, a better lifespan. What about the issues of IQ and personality? Some parents might say, hey, if I can have a kid who's a great musician, um, I would rather that. In fact, you could even make a very low test case to say, I'm a mother, I've given up 30 of my eggs. They've looked at it, they've screened it, and they can identify that they're all sort of part of me, but these ones, this person's going to be tall and smart and a great musician, and this one is going to be cantankerous and uh, and always just sort of waking up on the wrong side of the bed. And I think I'll take the well, the more balanced, smarter musician kid. What's wrong with that? Well, again, I think we have to question some of the assumptions contained within these claims, and that is that we can actually tangibly um, select for something like intelligence or musical ability and the fact that you know there isn't really consensus on this issue and science has been wrong about these kinds of issues in the past and maybe we should be exercising more caution when we're dealing with such claims so it wasn't that long ago that you know scientists believed hysteria was a disease or indeed masturbation was a disease so i think we really should be a bit more careful when we're thinking about these kinds of claims um, and be kind of wary and um, knowledgeable about how science can be proven wrong so what can we do about this other than sort of think differently, can we regulate this? Yes, of course, there's a role for regulation. But I also think that it's a shame that what tends to happen is the science comes first and then policy and regulation has to um, catch up afterwards. I think it'd be much better if science from the outset could be kind of imbued with the societal values. And I think that's something that's currently uh, missing. Well, the scientists would say they are imbued with the societal values. They want the value of tall people, smart people, uh, people who have skin made of Kevlar and, and are impervious to radiation to be super soldiers. Their values are just different. So again, why is it that we actually desire people to be more intelligent and to be more beautiful and to be taller? And I think the reasons for those are that they kind of rest on these problematic social norms that we should actually be working towards getting rid of rather than simply reinforcing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The technologies behind genetics can be used for much more than embryo screening. It enables a new approach to healthcare. Instead of treating the average person, it can personalize and tailor treatments down to the individual. I spoke to Eric Topol, a doctor and vice president at Scripps Research. He's the author of several books on healthcare and technology, and he's a leading voice in medical ethics. And his undergraduate thesis, way back in 1975, was on genetic therapy. In short, the guy is a superhero, and that's before any genetic enhancements. 
Well, Ken, I think the big difference is instead of this kind of dumbed-down approach where we treat people without uh, knowing much more about them, we will have a far greater handle uh, at many levels. Obviously, the genome, but many other biologic layers, their their physiology through different systems, uh, their environment that can be quantified. So we'll just know so much more about them, of course, the medical history. And that's going to change the face of how we approach people and, and promote health and actualize this dream of prevention, which has never really been done before. So what does prevention look like, say, in 30 years' time when we understand genotypes and phenotypes and propensities? Right. Well, I think that's where once you get that early on in life and they're actionable and we know how to prevent certain things we don't yet, like Alzheimer's really, but certain things we do, like heart disease, uh, and and um, and cancers and w w that is very early detection for people at high risk will prevent the bad outcomes. So if we know people are susceptible, and we've had some false starts of this back in the early days of gene chips, but now we're getting much better, and it's just going to continue. The more granular of the data, the more millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people where we have data matching up the genotype, phenotype, and other layers. We're just going to get smarter instead of the way we've practiced medicine without much uh, impact like that in the past. Stephen Shu of Genomic Prediction sees a similar future. It's a very different world. We are definitely going to get there relatively soon. Let me just mention a few things that will happen when everybody gets genotyped. Um, first of all, your GP will be able to actually be on the lookout for the specific disease conditions that you are likely to get. So it's, a, I think, a massive improvement of care uh, overall. On the other hand, in places like the United States where we have private insurance, the insurance companies are going to have to probably ask for a DNA sample before they price the policy they sell you. We ran some numbers for breast cancer. Um, Women that are known to be high risk for breast cancer, either because they have, for example, BRCA mutation or they have some family history, typically what's done is that they start giving them mammograms maybe 10 years earlier than ordinary women. The cost of a mammogram, I looked this up, is about $100 a mammogram, maybe $200. So if you multiply by 10, so you start them a decade earlier and they get 10 extra mammograms, that's an investment of $1,000. You'd make that investment only for the people that are determined to be high risk for uh, breast cancer. And then if you look up the payoff, so the payoff for identifying them, uh, the cancer early rather than later, that benefit tends to be many tens of thousands of dollars. So if you, if you calculate carefully, even though you're only allocating the care to individuals in the special area where they're high risk, where they're an outlier, um, when you calculate the cost benefit, uh, it seems like even with existing technology, the existing predictors that we have trained today, the net benefit is already quite positive. This has the potential to revolutionize healthcare. Eric Topol again. Yes, I, I do think that's a, a remarkable potential that is picking up signals that we can't see because of the amassing of the data. If, if, it's, if the data is open and accessible, yes. The other thing, Ken, that's really intriguing is a true learning health system where people's data uh, at many levels are used for nearest neighbor analysis. So when you come in with cancer diagnosis and I'm struggling, what would be your best therapy? I match you up with every level with treatment and outcomes, a whole species 
you know, seven billion people. And if we all work together, we could learn from each other about how to get best treatment outcomes. So that's one where AI, that's a nearest neighbor type of AI, has promise you know, in the long term. That's great. Yeah, the digital twin. Yes, the digital, great. exactly. Does regulation threaten that? Sure. Regulation uh, has a chance of uh, slowing things down, but it, it's one of those really fine balance because you, you really do need to protect from things that shouldn't be done. So uh, the right level of regulation probably is what we, we need, uh, and that still remains to be seen, whether we'll have that. But what are the possible downsides to such an approach? So far, we have spoken to scientists, doctors, and philosophers. Earlier, I made reference to Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. So perhaps it's right for those in the domain of art and culture to weigh in. I traveled to North London last week to watch a brilliant new play that offers a dystopian view of genetics. It's called The Phlebotomist by Ella Rode. I spoke to some audience members about its themes after the show. In many ways, I was watching it. It's not set so far in the future. It's not set in such an extreme that we can't already see see certain aspects of this already happening in terms of how we could potentially be so specifically mapping out our futures and mapping out our genes and mapping out our babies and our and our entire species in a way that could only end in catastrophe. I remember coming to see this production last year when it was downstairs at the Humpster Theatre and coming away from it feeling actually like it was all too real. I wasn't quite aware as to how, um, how real the possibility was until bringing mum to come and see it this evening and now I'm even more frightened. For those who don't know, a phlebotomist is someone who takes blood for medical testing. And to hear about the plot and why we might want to be cautious about the technology, I spoke to the playwright Ella Rode. The phlebotomist explores a world where everybody has had a genetic test done. So they've had their genome mapped. And so everybody knows lots of information about their medical future. And it's been reduced to a rating between 1 and 10, which sums up your genetic quality. And the impact of this is that society has started to stratify based on people's genetics. Within the play, we, we track the relationship between a young couple and also their, their friend. And through them, we see the way that this rating system is impacting young people and old people and all kinds of people. And it impacts dating. For example, um, people start to only date within their rate bracket. So if you were a kind of 7.2, you'd probably seek somebody who was a 7.2 or above because you would want to have healthy children. Hello, I'm Alex. (laughs) This is me. (laughs) You've seen my info already, so I'll just cut to the uh, chase. Um, I'm looking for somebody to enjoy life with, someone who can make me laugh. It's not that hard. <laughs> um, I'm a teacher, Yeah, love my job, love kids, want kids of my own in the, f- well, not too far in the future, <laughs> which means realistically I'm only looking for someone who is 6.5 or above. Not that I have a problem with low raters, or, well, I, I mean, uh, and obviously I know I'm only 6.3, but if you look at my breakdown, it's mainly because I'm celiac and because of my eyesight. Bit dyslexic, nothing major. <laughs> Now, in the play, you look at a lot of the medical predispositions for Huntington disease and for other disease types, but surely these technologies will also allow us to cure some of these diseases. So knowing that there's a problem is also the first step in then remedying the problem. And you don't look at that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the impact of genomics in medicine could be incredibly beneficial. And certainly, as we learn more about the way that our genomes work, 
the more we're able to treat and cure certain diseases. I think for me, what's interesting about it is actually where we stop. So I think that it's pretty clear cut with certain types of cancer, for example, that um, if we're able to phase those diseases out either via like stopping people from breeding them or by genetic editing, which is obviously coming on leaps and bounds at the moment, those things for me seem relatively clear cut ethically to some extent. I mean, obviously, we don't know what the kind of long term ramifications on evolution are of doing genetic editing. I think in terms of the actual science in it, I was very careful to make sure that everything that was uh, that's in the play is plausible, if not currently possible. So it's uh, based on the diseases that, and behavioural traits that we can already map. I actually think the way that we rate people already means that the play culturally isn't that far off. And, you know, as anyone will know, we already live in an incredibly unequal society, which is becoming increasingly unequal in lots of ways. Ella Rode believes that this could profoundly affect our psyche and how we think about the future and our own genetic health. Golza Barn agrees. Often there's not much point in having these kinds of screenings, especially for diseases that have no cure, for example. So what is the point in screening for um, pancreatic cancer when we don't exactly have a cure for this? So what are you doing except, you know, just increasing someone's anxiety and stress and potentially exacerbating their susceptibility to any other illness through this anxiety and stress that's created? We accept that art imitates life, and we can only hope that in this case, life does not imitate art. Genetics offers the promise of helping people escape the randomness of natural evolution for a deliberate way to improve life and enhance ourselves. But it might come at an uncomfortable cost, potentially exacerbating inequalities. As always, our ethics are not advancing at the pace of our sciences, and the controversial questions that confront us are not for the future. The technology is already at our doorstep. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. This program was part of the Economist's Open Future Initiative that makes the case for freedom, rights, technology, and diversity in the 21st century. Over the coming days, you can access pieces by or about Gulza Barn, Eric Topol, Ella Rode, and Jamie Metzl by going to economist.com slash openfuture. Remember to share us on social media and rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.